talking. Good morning. It's good to be with you as always. Uh, it's a joy to preach to the people at Millwood Baptist Church. I know that you love God's Word. You're eager to receive God's Word. And so let's jump into the book of Acts this morning. Uh, Pastor Juan and the other elders at High Point send you greetings from uh, Northeast Austin, and I'm excited to be here with you all. At High Point, where I serve as a pastor, we conduct membership interviews for those who are seeking to join our church. I imagine that y'all do something similar here at Millwood. Um, we do these interviews for several reasons, right? Part of it is just to get to know the people a little bit, hear their story. We want to hear about their testimony, how they came to faith in Christ. And we also want to hear about their understanding of the gospel. Since we're a Baptist church, we believe only those who show a credible profession of faith should be brought into the membership, right? And so these interviews, they kind of help us to know, does this person have a, a genuine testimony? Are they evidencing signs of saving faith in the Lord Jesus? One of the key components of the membership interview is when we ask a person to share his or her understanding of the gospel. We ask them to give just a one- or two-minute explanation of the good news about Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, their response follows the, the common formula, God-man-Christ response. So they talk about how God is holy, He created all things. They talk about man, how we've sinned and, and broken God's law. They talk about Christ as the perfect sacrifice. And they talk about our response, repentance and faith. I'm sure you're familiar with all of these things. Over the years, though, as I've conducted these interviews, and I've done quite a few at this point, I've noticed a trend. People often forget to mention the resurrection. They just leave it out entirely, right? So they talk about Jesus' death, his payment for sins, and then they move right on to our response. Of course, when I point this out to them, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, his resurrection. Like, how could I ever forget that? But I, I wonder what a person might say if I pointed out to them that they'd left off the ascension. I imagine some people would just look at me blankly. Uh, a few people might even say, what's that? But Scripture, it actually makes a pretty big deal about the ascension. As many of you know, I'm sure the Apostles' Creed, it devotes a whole line to this important event, right? It says, He, Jesus, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Perhaps we would do well to consider afresh the significance of this important event. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. What we see in this passage, and you see it throughout the book of Acts, is that the Lord Jesus is advancing God's saving reign on the earth through the Spirit-empowered witness of His disciples. Right? That's, that's kind of what's going on in this passage, in the book of Acts, in its entirety. But what I want to consider this morning is particularly, what role does the ascension play in all this? When we talk about the ascension, we're talking about Jesus being taken up in a cloud, passing from this earthly existence into the very presence of God to be seated at his right hand. Another way we could say it is, how does the ascension, right, connect what God has done in history through Christ, through his death, his resurrection, how does the ascension help us to connect that to what Jesus is doing today, here and now, in and through his church? I hope you'll see that the ascension plays a crucial, even if at times overlooked, role in how God is advancing his reign on the earth. 
By focusing our attention on this key moment, the ascension, my hope is that we'll gain a deeper awareness of Jesus' presence and power in our daily lives as we seek to live faithfully between his first and second comings. So as we work through Acts 1, 1 to 11, I want to draw out four ways that the ascension impacts our lives today as Jesus' disciples. Four ways. So our four points this morning are going to be as follows. Number one, the ascension reminds us to speak of Jesus in the present tense. The ascension reminds us to speak of Jesus in the present tense. Number two, the ascension fixes our hope to the resurrected body of Christ. The ascension fixes our hope to the resurrected body of Christ. Number three, the ascension makes room for the Spirit's empowering presence. The Spirit makes room for the, or the ascension makes room for the Spirit's empowering presence. And then number four, the ascension clarifies our mission in this age. The ascension actually clarifies what our mission is as Jesus' disciples in this age. So look with me first at verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at how the ascension reminds us to speak of Jesus in the present tense. Starting in verse 1, as Marilyn read, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So you'll remember that the book of Acts is written by Luke, who was a physician. He was a close associate of the Apostle Paul. And as verse 1 indicates, Acts picks up where Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, had left off. Right? So Luke has written this gospel account, this orderly account of the things that Jesus had accomplished among his people. And then he writes the Acts of the Apostles to show how God was continuing to work out his plans and his purposes in this age. Luke wants to assure Theophilus, and by extension, readers like you and me today, that God is working out his plans for human history and fulfilling his saving promises to his people. And even though Jesus might not have been the Messiah that people were expecting, and even though the inclusion of the Gentiles within the people of God might have been very surprising to readers of the Old Testament in Luke's day, Luke wants to narrate these events in Luke and in Acts so that we come to see that what's taken place is really in fulfillment of God's purposes and his plans. But notice what Luke says here in verse 1. He says, in his first book, the Gospel of Luke, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. There are massive implications that flow from this little word began. Luke is indicating that the book of Acts is going to chronicle the continuing works and deeds and uh, teachings of Jesus that began in the gospel, right? So while his, his first volume dealt with Jesus' earthly ministry, which culminated in his death and his resurrection, the book of Acts is going to narrate Jesus' ongoing work, what he's still doing in and through his church even today. And what I want to draw our attention to is this. The ascension is actually what connects Jesus' earthly words and deeds during his ministry with what he's doing now, his ongoing ministry, through his spirit-empowered disciples. As one person puts it, the ascension is the hinge upon which Luke's two volumes turn, right? It's, it's the hinge that holds together Luke and Acts. 
So Luke ends the gospel talking about the ascension, Luke 24, 50 to 53. And then he opens Acts by once again narrating about the ascension in the text that we're in this morning. And so the ascension can be seen as both the concluding event in Jesus's earthly ministry, but also the inaugural event of Jesus's heavenly existence at God's right hand. So my question to you is, do you speak about Jesus mainly or even exclusively in the past tense? Do you talk about how Jesus taught many things, that he healed many diseases long ago, how he cast out many demons back 2,000 years ago? Maybe you talk about how he suffered and how he, he was buried and how he rose again so many years ago. Obviously, I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about those things. Of course, we have to talk about the foundation of our faith, what Jesus accomplished in time and space for the salvation of his people. But what the ascension reminds us is that we also need to speak of Jesus in the present tense. Christ's active reign as the ascended Lord, it compels us to speak of him as more than just merely a historical figure, right? We shouldn't speak about the Lord Jesus the same way we talk about George Washington or St. Augustine as if he's long since died and been buried. Have you noticed how charitable foundations, other nonprofit organizations, those sorts of things, they're often named after a prominent individual. The one that comes immediately to mind is uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? You can think of a lot of foundations like that. Naming an, an organization after a, a prominent figure, it's often a way of honoring that person. But it's also a way of kind of perpetuating their legacy, keeping their memory going even after they die, right? Kind of continuing their work on after they've passed away. I worry that as Christians, we almost treat the church too much like a charitable foundation with Jesus as this founding spokesmember who's died and now it's, it's up to us to, to propagate his message and to keep it going or else it's going to, to pass away into oblivion. But the Lord Jesus is not a long-dead figure whose message is in danger of being lost or forgotten on the sea of history. Of course, he does commission us to go out, to preach his gospel, to be his ambassadors, to speak the good news to others. The church really does act in that way in this age. And yet, our actions are enabled and made possible by the resurrected and ascended Lord who sits right now ruling and reigning over all creation. Jesus is not a passive spectator in what happens in 2022 in Austin, Texas, or anywhere else. Jesus is not constrained by our ability to speak his word. He's not fenced in by what the church chooses to do or not do. His arm is not too short to save. If the church somehow utterly failed in its task to preach the gospel, which I believe to be impossible, but even if it were possible somehow that the church could fail in its task, Jesus could make even the stones cry out. So as you follow Christ here and now, be sure that you don't only look backward to the historical Jesus, but also upward to the glorified, ascended, and reigning Jesus. So if, if you need boldness today to share the gospel with a neighbor or a coworker, pray to the risen Lord asking that he would fill you with his Holy Spirit right now so that you might speak the good news with boldness, clarity, conviction. If you're battling sin or facing temptation, look to Christ who has faced 
similar temptations, and he now stands this moment ready to assist you in your time of need. Listen to how Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says it. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And notice, he's passed through the heavens. That's ascension language. Once you see the ascension, you start to see it all over the New Testament. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we only look back to Jesus and his example, what he did thousands of years ago, we're going to be crushed. Following Jesus' example is a heavier burden than even the Mosaic law. We'll only begin to make progress in looking like Jesus as we look upward to Jesus, our faithful high priest, who lavishes his grace on us from heaven. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he describes, in the way that only he can, what it's like to pray to this Christ and to ask him right now to transform you. Listen to how Lewis says it, quote, A real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you were saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It is not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It is a living man, still as much a man as you, and still as much God as when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self that he has. End quote. Amen, right? So let's continue following the Lord, believing that Christ is going to do what he's promised to do. And as we do, let's speak of Christ in the present tense. But number two, let's look at verse three, and we're going to see how the ascension fixes our hope to the resurrected body of Christ. Verse three, it reads, he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here in verse 3, Luke goes on to explain that after Jesus rose from the dead, there was a, a 40-day period where he, he showed up to his disciples and showed that he had really risen from the dead. These post-resurrection appearances are actually really important. In the book of Acts, they form a, a key piece of the apostles' preaching. Luke, in the end of his gospel, Luke 24, he narrates some of these post-resurrection appearances. The Gospel of John also records Jesus appearing multiple times to his disciples. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how Jesus appeared even to more than 500 disciples. And so it's these, the, the eyewitness testimony of the disciples to the resurrected Jesus, that's what grounds their message and it's what authenticates their preaching. But there is something different about Jesus' body after the resurrection. He was raised with what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, a spiritual body. In other words, he had been raised to a totally different form of existence. He had passed into an entirely different age, a new age, the age of the Spirit. And so this 40 days of him presenting himself alive, it's, it's not like Jesus rose from the dead and now he's just resumed his earthly ministry before he was crucified, right? This period was transitional. The great Dutch theologian Hermann Bavink, he observes this, quote, Jesus no longer belonged to the earth. His form was another than he had had before his death. 
He appeared and disappeared in a mysterious way. The disciples felt that the relationship in which they now stood to him was very different from their former companionship. His life no longer belonged to the earth, but to heaven, end quote. I think this helps to explain the otherwise kind of odd statement in John chapter 20 where Jesus speaks with Mary Magdalene. And you'll remember that Mary arrives early to the tomb on the third day, and she's actually very distraught. She's weeping because she suspects that someone has stolen the body. Jesus, he begins to speak to her, but she doesn't recognize him. She actually thinks that he's the gardener. But then when he finally says her name, Mary turns and she calls out, teacher. And Jesus, he responds with these surprising words. Maybe you've puzzled over these words before. Jesus responds to Mary and says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus tells Mary not to cling to him, and the reason he gives is because he hasn't ascended yet. The time for his bodily existence among his disciples is quickly coming to an end. Jesus doesn't want them to, to grasp at his flesh, to try and hang on to him in the flesh, because he doesn't belong here any longer. The time of his departure has arrived. He enjoys a new quality of existence. He's actually won the very right to enter into God's presence. So when we read in verse 3 here in Acts about how Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples, how he appeared to them during these 40 days, we should marvel at the fact that Jesus did not put aside his humanity when he ascended into heaven. The same Jesus who in the incarnation became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, also ascended in that same body to heaven. Even though that body was spirit-empowered and glorified, it was the same body. And as one person put it, the ascension of Jesus in the same body in which he was crucified and resurrected, it establishes his continuing union with our humanity. I worry that sometimes we talk as if Jesus came to earth, that he lived and died and rose again, and then it's like he went back into heaven and just went back to his former existence. We kind of make it sound like he, he took on flesh, lived here on the earth, and then he took off the flesh and went back up to heaven. The ascension helps us to banish such a thought from our minds. In the ascension, Jesus enters into heaven, the very dwelling place of God, as a man. And if that explodes all your categories for flesh and heaven and spiritual, it should. But the Bible clearly teaches it. Jesus took on our humanity, and he's never put it off, and he never will for all eternity. I wonder if you've ever received an item of clothing, maybe as a gift, that you absolutely hated. Maybe your grandma knitted you a less-than-attractive scarf and gave it to you for Christmas. Or maybe a, a friend gifted you a t-shirt in the color that you absolutely despise wearing. When we receive those sort of gifts, we feel pressure, right? Like we, I need to wear this, probably in the presence of that person to show that I really like it. But we, we're ashamed of it, right? We're, we're embarrassed to wear it. We might put it on real quick just to go to grandma's house, make an appearing with it, and then we take it off real quick. You see where I'm going with this. The ascension, it teaches us Jesus did not receive our humanity 
that way. He willingly took on flesh. As Hebrews says, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. The text says that since we share in flesh and blood, he partook of the very same things. He gladly assumed our flesh in order to taste death for us and to destroy the works of the devil. So the, the ascension is the ongoing token and pledge that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. The Bible, it actually expects that Christians would draw deep encouragement and hope from the fact that Jesus' glorified body is now in heaven. Think about Paul's words in Philippians 3, 20 to 21, a passage that I'm sure you've heard, but maybe you've glossed over it too quickly. Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And you hear that kind of idea of Acts 1 almost in the background, right? That the same body in which Jesus went up, he's going to return in that same body to transform our bodies. If anything, Jesus now in heaven at the Father's right hand is more human and more alive than any of us in this room. He has a, a glorious, spirit-invigorated body, not subject to death or decay or suffering. He now enjoys the fullness of an eternal, indestructible life, the sort of immortality that we were always destined for, even from the beginning. So maybe you or, or someone you love is suffering right now in your mortal bodies. Maybe cancer or other disease or chronic illness has ravaged your body or someone that you love. The ascension reminds us to, to fix our hope to the body of Jesus. It's the pledge of our bodies, what they will become in the resurrection. Perhaps you've even had to bury the body of a Christian in the ground, a loved one. The ascension fixes our hope on Christ's resurrected body that even though we die, yet shall we live. And knowing that Jesus right now is reigning in his own glorified body tells us of the hope that we have. So number three. Now let's look at verses four through eight. We're going to look at how the ascension, it makes room for the Spirit's empowering presence. Starting in verse four. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We'll stop there. So we, we read in these verses how Jesus had ordered his disciples not to leave Jerusalem because they were going to receive power, the promise of the Father. In Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus says, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we see the, the fulfillment of these words in the second chapter of Acts with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter, in his sermon on that day, he explains how the ascension connects with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, verse 32 and 33, Peter says, this Jesus who was crucified, delivered up according to the plan of God, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
Again, ascension language there. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this, uh, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter is saying that Jesus, he's been highly exalted. In Paul's words in Philippians 2, he's been exalted to the highest place and given the name above every name. He's ascended to the seat of highest honor. And as the God-man, he's triumphed over sin and death. And now, from heaven's throne, Jesus is able to dispense the spoils of his victory. Of all the wonderful gifts that Jesus has earned the right to give, the greatest gift is surely his own Holy Spirit that he possesses from the Father. The Old Testament, it speaks in several places about how God would pour out his Spirit on his people. The Spirit is intimately connected to the work of the Messiah and the promises of a new covenant. The expectation was that God was going to cleanse his people from their sin to bring about inner transformation and an internal renewal. And the Spirit was going to play an important role in this, writing God's law on his people's hearts, causing them to walk in his ways. And so, as unexpected as it might seem, the ascension is actually good news for God's people because it opens up space for Christ to send the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 7, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So we ought to wonder at the fact that Christ pours out this most precious gift of his, whole, his Holy Spirit. Consider just a few things that the Spirit does. He does so many things in the lives of believers. The Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, John 16, verse 8. The Spirit, as the Spirit of truth, he guides his people into all truth, John 16, verse 13. The Spirit also glorifies Christ. He takes what's Christ and he gives it to us, John 16, verse 14. The Spirit regenerates God's people. He brings about new birth in our hearts, Titus 3, verse 5. The Spirit makes us members of Christ's body, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. The Spirit, he causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, verse 6. The Spirit intercedes for us when we don't have the words to pray, Romans 8, verse 26. And the Spirit works in us the fruit that's pleasing to God, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So Jesus, his bodily presence on earth allowed his disciples to, to see his glory, to witness him in action. The Apostle John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, John 1, 14. Even so, now because of the ascension, Jesus is able to be personally present to all of his followers in an even more deeply intimate way than his disciples enjoyed when he walked among them. Paul describes this reality in Romans 5, 5 when he says, God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which he's given to us. Or think about Jesus in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Right after he, he tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations, to baptize and to teach, his very last words in Matthew 28 are, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But Jesus' bodily absence because of the ascension means his spiritual presence through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the ascension, it makes room for us to enjoy deeper fellowship with Christ by virtue of the Holy Spirit. 
than we would enjoy even if Jesus remained on in the flesh. All right, but look at verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus here in verse 8, he, he highlights one particular reason among all these other reasons why he's pouring out his Holy Spirit, and it's so that we would be empowered for witness. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. At the end of Luke's gospel, he talks about how we would be clothed with power from on high. Throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit is closely associated with the bold proclamation of the gospel. Often, Jesus' disciples, they're described as being filled with the Spirit or being full of the Holy Spirit, and then they boldly proclaim the gospel, right? This proclamation, it takes place in various settings, whether before kings and rulers and governors, whether it's in synagogues, whether it's before hostile religious authorities. In any case, the disciples are assured that Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is going to empower them to speak boldly. The book of Acts, it even talks about the advance of the gospel in ways like this, where it says, the word of God was increasing and multiplying. So Jesus He builds his church through the spirit-empowered witness of his disciples. But if you you read the rest of the book of Acts, you know that there's not always smooth sailing as it relates to this spirit-empowered boldness. There are many things that threaten the spread of the gospel, right? Persecution and suffering are some of the most obvious examples, but there's also internal division and sin within the church itself. And just as in Acts... 2,000 years ago, so it is with us today, right? Whether suffering or whether division, whether your own sin or the sin of someone around you, there are still many things that threaten to derail the church from acting as faithful witnesses to Christ. And so what is hindering you from joyfully witnessing to Jesus' resurrection as you go about your daily life? Here, once more, the ascension, I think, can help us. You see, the ascension, it points us to the incomparable power of Christ, the power that was at work raising Jesus from the dead, seating him at the right hand of the Father. That same power is now available to us by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. And as we we heard earlier in the service from Ephesians 1, think about Paul's prayer there for the Christians in Ephesus. He prays in Ephesians 1, 19 through 21, that his readers would know, that they would really come to know and to perceive what is, he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So God's immeasurable greatness is at work towards you, believer, who are in Christ. And he says it's the power that's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Again, ascension language. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So did you catch how the ascension, it encourages us, it strengthens us as we seek to be faithful? Paul wants us to know deep down in our bones 
that the same infinite power that was at work raising Jesus from the dead, seating him at God's right hand, that same power is at work towards us who believe. And that's good news. Moreover, I think kind of implied in this text is that because Christ has ascended beyond every ruler and authority and principality and power, he's disarmed them, right? Even the things that might act as obstacles to his mission, even the the ways that Satan's forces are arrayed against the church, Christ has totally disarmed them, and now he reigns above all of them at the highest place of authority. We can think about even just in the book of Acts, a great threat to the church is the Apostle Paul before he becomes the Apostle Paul, right? He's breathing murderous threats against the church, trying to stamp out this movement of the followers of Jesus. Because Christ has ascended, he can give to his church even enemies and rebels of his church. But finally, we want to look here at verses 9 through 11, and we're going to see fourth and finally that the ascension, it clarifies our mission in this age. Starting in verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we saw in verse 8 how Jesus' disciples are going to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And then in these verses, we finally hear about the actual historical description, Jesus actually literally being taken up in a cloud to heaven. It's interesting in these verses, there's a strong emphasis on the visual, tangible uh, perception of these events. I think Luke is trying to say, These things actually happened. The disciples really witnessed these things with their eyes. They saw Jesus go up in a cloud. In verse 9, it says, as they were looking on. Verse 9 also says, a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10 says, while they were gazing into heaven. Verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Verse 11, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So do you hear how... Luke is really driving on the historical, bodily, tangible fact of this event of the ascension. The angels say, why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus is going to come in the same way as you saw him go. So just as the ascension was real, it was bodily, his return is going to be real and bodily as well. Jesus ascended in the flesh, he reigns in the flesh, and he's coming back in the flesh. So this text would caution us against symbolizing or spiritualizing or allegorizing this text or thinking about Christ's return in some ethereal spiritual way versus the very physical bodily return that Christians have always expected. But how does the ascension clarify our mission in this age? Consider how Jesus turns his disciples away from needless speculation about the end times and toward the task that he's given them to do. In verse 6, When his disciples ask, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus responds, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own accord. I like how one New Testament scholar, he summarizes Jesus' words here as basically, forget the eschatological timetable, your job is to be my witnesses. Right? I think that sums up Jesus pretty well there. In other words, 
Stop trying to figure out the exact order of all these things, how everything is going to play out. That's going to be counterproductive. What you've been tasked with is witnessing to the ends of the earth. Similarly, in verse 11, the angels ask, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words, you can stare all you want, but you're not going to speed up his return just by gazing up into heaven. As Jesus' disciples are waiting on Christ's return, it's an active waiting. Christ has provided us with clear directives about what we're to do in this age, not to figure out when exactly his return is going to take place, since not even the sun knows the day or the hour, uh, but to focus on his mission, what he's clearly revealed to us about what we're called to do. In Acts 1, it's to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, it's to disciple the nations and baptize and teach. But whatever the case, he's given us clear directives about what he wants us to do. So I must ask you, what is distracting you from being obedient and carrying out the work that Jesus has given you to do? Maybe like the disciples, you become fixated on questions about the end times, about eschatology and the timing of Christ's return. This text would obviously have something to say to you, nudging you to, to maybe shift your focus a little bit back on what Christ is calling you to do, his mission in the world. But maybe most of you are not that type of person who gets really jazzed about prophecies and charts and predictions about the second coming. But I wonder if there are other things, even good things, that have moved your focus away from witnessing to the Lord Jesus. I think even the New Testament kind of predicts this, that as Jesus' return gets spread out over decades and years, the tendency is to lose urgency, right? It's to suspect that maybe we don't need to be as busy with what the Master has given us to do. But the time that we live in, the interval between the ascension and the second coming of Christ, it's not an indefinite period for us to do with whatever we please. Jesus has split open history. He's, he's created a crack in human history so that he can pour out his spirit, create a kingdom people, all to the glory of the Father. And we have marching orders from the king while he's away. So the ascension, it reminds us that Jesus is going to come back in the same way he left. It would be foolish for us to busy ourselves with anything else than what Jesus has told us by his own authority to be up to. Many of Jesus' parables deal with this very thing, right? To talk about what to do when the, the bridegroom is away. So how might we keep ourselves from getting distracted? How do we commit to an active waiting? How do we be about Jesus' work while he is away? Paul, I think, provides us some help in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, and it shouldn't be any surprise that Paul here brings in the ascension, and I think it helps to provide some help. He says, starting in verse 1 of Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Again, ascension language. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The reason that we get distracted from the mission that Jesus has given us is because our minds become quickly taken with the things of this world. There are so many things that 
compete for our attention or that uh, threaten to lead us astray and consume our thoughts, and we fail to set our minds on the things above. But Paul is saying that our true life is currently hidden from human eyes. So even as we go about life in this world, our true life is Christ himself. And even though that true life is inaccessible to human vision and human sight, Jesus now lives and reigns, and he will come again. If we want to be about the work that Jesus calls us to do, whether it's making disciples, whether it's being his witnesses, whether it's putting to death sin, whether it's growing in holiness, then we cannot allow our minds to be consumed with this world alone. Certainly, we, we live and we work and we eat and we do business and we do all sorts of things in this world. And God has given us all things in this world to richly enjoy as long as we do so with prayer and thanksgiving. But we must find ways of regularly taking our thoughts Godward, of lifting our hearts towards Christ, of moving our souls heavenward. And we have unique distractions in our culture that make that harder, I think. And so if we become consumed by the hustle and bustle of this world, how can we obey what Paul is talking about here in Colossians 3? He's telling us, Christ has ascended. Set your minds on the things above where Christ is. So what time are you carving out each day to set your mind on the things above? Are you giving your best thoughts, your best attention, your best you can to where your true life is really hidden? and where your lasting treasure is. So, in our journey through Acts 1 through 11, I've tried to draw out four ways that the ascension impacts our lives today as Jesus' disciples. We've seen how the ascension, it reminds us to speak of Jesus in the present tense. We've also looked at how the ascension fixes our hope to the resurrected body of Christ. We've thought about how the ascension, it makes room for the Spirit's empowering presence and the ascension also clarifies our mission in this age. And if you hadn't thought much about the ascension prior to coming in here, I hope that I've at least put this on your radar as, as something important to the Christian life. I hope you've seen the rich theology that's packed into the doctrine of the ascension and how it has very practical implications for our lives, even though it might seem like thinking about Jesus and his exaltation, that has nothing to say to me in my life. I hope you've seen how Nothing could be further from the truth. So I pray that you would grasp the connection between Jesus' work, what he accomplished in time and space, in his death and his resurrection, how the ascension helps us to connect that with what Jesus is currently doing, here and now, in and through his people. And I trust that as you meditate on Christ's ascension, that you'll begin to appreciate Jesus' presence and his power in your daily life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that Jesus has died and risen. He's taken on our humanity, and now he's ascended to your right hand, and he reigns in his physical body at your right hand as the pledge and the token of what you will do on the last day for us. And so, Father, we pray, would you allow us to set our minds on the things above where Christ is? Would you allow us to be taken with the thought that our life is hidden with Christ? Would you allow us to fix our hope more surely on Christ and his transformation of our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body? And Father, we do pray, would you make us faithful 
to be your witnesses, to do what you've called us to do and also what you've empowered us to do by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.